to open your Bibles with me this morning again to Romans chapter 12. And if, uh, if you weren't here last week, let me just give you a quick refresher on where we are. We're turning another one of those corners in the book of Romans that transitions from a previous section and moves into a new kind of focus. Paul has been writing a letter to a church. And in the first 11 chapters, he has given us what amounts to an overview of the gospel of salvation. Beginning in Romans 1, going through Romans 11, he has explained to us very carefully, very systematically, and very clearly what what is ours as a result of Jesus Christ? What is our position? What is our privilege? How we've been saved? All all the things that pertain to salvation. As often is the case, Paul, with his pastor's heart, now turns to application. This is where, as we say, the rubber meets the road. This is where Paul begins to say, now, how does this look in your life? How does this live out in day-to-day experience? And he begins in Romans 12:1 with a therefore kind of transition. And we looked at that first verse last week. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, which is your reasonable service of worship. And that's where we spent our time last week. The place to begin always in living a life for God is with sold-out surrender and total dedication. None of the realities that are available for us in Jesus Christ will ever be realized if we're half-hearted in our commitment. We're never going to experience the fullness. And let me just interject here. If you are dissatisfied right now with Jesus, with your Christian experience, with the way your life is going, I can assure you on the basis of the Word of God that it is not God that has not measured up. He makes promises and he keeps his word. I have come to give you life in all of its fullness. And so if you're somehow short, then the thing that we need to evaluate is our commitment. Because the thing that brings abundant life is abandonment to Jesus Christ. And that's where Paul says we begin. I want you to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable, logical, sensible response to all that he's done for you. And Paul adds a little word at the end of that first verse. I didn't have a chance to expound on it very much last week. I'm not going to take a lot of time today. But let me just highlight for a moment the word worship. He said, it is your reasonable service of worship. You know, many times when we 
If we ask one another, um, what do you do on Sunday morning? Some might say, well, I go to worship. I go to a worship service. But, you know, the Scripture has a different perspective of worship. Worship, by definition, means bringing worth, ascribing glory, praise to God, making His character, His presence manifest, bringing Him out in the open, and ascribing to Him the glory that He is due. That is worship. And Paul says, when we live lives that are dedicated unto Him, Every moment of our life is an act of worship. And the truth of the matter is, if we don't come in the front door of the church worshiping, it's unlikely that we're going to worship when we're here. Because what we do when we gather on Sunday or Saturday or Friday or wherever it is that Christians gather as a family, we celebrate the life that we have in Jesus Christ in corporate worship But if worship isn't happening throughout the week, every day, it's probably not going to happen in your life here on Sunday. It's not singing a song or praying a prayer or hearing a sermon. It's living a life of dedicated commitment to Jesus Christ where everything becomes sacred and holy because it's devoted to Him. And our lives... Reflect His glory and bring Him praise. When's the last time you had someone ask you to give an explanation for the hope that is in you? But that's what Peter says. He anticipated people asking. (laughs) And he said, you need to be ready to give a reason, an answer, for the hope that is in you because your life should arouse questions in the minds of people. How come you have such peace? Where do you get that joy? Why are you so full of confidence? How come you seem to have so much faith? Ah, let me tell you about Jesus. So we live lives of worship. Now, Paul introduces the conjunction meaning there's a second part to this commitment. And, verse 2, do not be conformed, if you're reading NIV, it says any longer, to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Consecration and renewal. Commitment and progressive development. Selling out to Jesus and then being renewed in your mind in such a way that you begin to think and reflect the thoughts and attitudes and mind of Christ and no longer be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's interesting that Paul focuses on this transformation with the mind. Have you ever thought about that? Why does he say, be transformed by the renewing of your mind? 
Why doesn't he say something like, be transformed by being born again? Or be transformed by being filled with the Spirit? Be transformed by worshiping and reading the Bible? Well, some of those things are already presumed in the commitments. But he knows that the transformation ultimately takes place in the way we think. The scripture says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And out of the heart of man, out of his innermost belief system, flows all kinds of things, whether good or bad. It comes from the, the beliefs that we hold deeply within ourselves. And I want to tell you this morning that the most important thing in the world relative to your relationship with God and your behavior is what you believe is true. Because whether you have taken the time to articulate it or not, whether you have written it down, whether you have formalized your value system and can state your beliefs in sentences, or whether they're just kind of in there being sort of held loosely without any uh, bullet points or outline, your belief system, what you believe is true, is what governs your choices, guides your behavior, and ultimately determines what, where your joy and happiness comes from or not. We act out of our belief system. And Paul is telling us that we come to the, to the foot of the cross and we come to the point of consecration with a defective belief system. We think wrongly. We imagine in ways that are contrary to the mind of God. We naturally believe a lie that has been sold us by the devil through parents and grandparents. And I'm not dissing your heritage. I'm just saying you started, you came from Adam. And everybody from Adam on down that believed the lie about the fruit has been on the wrong path ever since. And we're born with a defective thinker. Our minds are, are all after the wrong thing. And it's interesting the way Paul says this, and, and it's not so much that the English doesn't say it, but the English, I think, we could expand the translation a little bit. The NIV in this verse 2 probably does the best job. It, it, how many of you have an NIV here this morning? Anyway, is that the one that says, and do not be conformed any longer to this world? Okay, good. That picks up the best sense of the Greek verb. Because the word that Paul uses is, is a... 
a word that means you're, you are conformed to the world, stop being that way. Stop being conformed. It's where we already are. And we need something to arrest us and turn us in a different direction. We are conformed to the world by default. You know, when you go to one of these stores, Best Buy, Circuit City, or one of the popular stores, you buy a computer and you take it home, there's a ton of stuff on the hard drive. The minute you plug it in, turn it on, all kinds of programs come up. Do you want AOL? Do you want this? Do you want that? Do you want Microsoft World? Do you want this picture deal? Do you want this video deal? Do you want, you know, it's all there. It's all on the hard drive. It's already pre-wired. That's one of the reasons why I like to get a computer that, that just, you know, comes from a generic place and they put the operating system on and then I can put the hardware on I want because, you know, it's taken up. There's so many things open in the tray that you can't even get the memory to work hardly. It's already preset to entertain and wow you. And, and if you want to get all that cleaned up and make your machine run better, you know what you have to do? You have to, you have to get all that stuff off the hard drive and, and out of the programs and out of the system tray and out of the active memory and, and kind of recover your machine, okay? And, and when we look at something like that, we say that's the default. That's what it goes back to naturally. Okay, unless you do something to change it, that's where you start. Well, friends, we're born with a default. We're born with a lot of faults, too, but we have a default. And we go back to that naturally. And Paul says, when you come to Christ, even when you make a commitment, your mind is still operating under the default. You're operating with a worldly perspective. And something needs to happen to change the way you think if this Christian life is going to make sense and, and operate through you successfully. There has to be a transformation of your fundamental beliefs. And we face this every time we read the Scripture, we're confronted with, with verses like, the, the mind set on the flesh is enmity toward God. The natural mind is enmity toward God. Or, the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. Or, Isaiah 55, my ways are not your ways, neither are my thoughts your thoughts. Or, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. You see, all of these verses tell us our thinking is warped. It's wrong. And one of the things that surprises people, and it's kind of unsettling if you think about it, you can come to Christ and sell out to Him and devote your, your body to Him as a living sacrifice, and if you don't allow Him to address the way you think, if you don't allow him to change the way you think, you're going to continue to make bad choices in worldly ways that are going to lead you contrary to the plans and purposes of God and leave you frustrated. And you say, what's wrong with me? Well, you're just thinking naturally. But you can't think naturally. Because the natural man 
is caught up in a world system that is opposed to God and is ultimately the one that's going to burn up with the melting of the elements and end up in the fires of hell. It's going the wrong direction. And so Paul says we need to recognize this and no longer be conformed to this world because you are unless something happens to change it. But be renewed, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now as soon as you say this, the natural tendency of most people is to think, okay, he's telling me I need to get educated. How do you, how do you, how do you improve your mind? Well, you go take a course, right? You take a class. We're going to start a class Tuesday night in digital photography, first one. And unbelievers and believers will both benefit from being in this class. And they will both learn the same material, and if they apply it, they will both enjoy the same kind of success. There are a lot of things that you can just simply take a class and get educated. But when the scripture talks about spiritual understanding, a renewed mind, a renewed spirit of the mind, when, when the Bible begins to address this, it is talking about far more than the mere assimilation of a database of facts. It's talking about more than learning the books of the Bible and their names in order. It's talking about more than understanding the outline of the books. Memorizing key verses that demonstrate key doctrines. Friends, you can come to the Bible in an educational, academic way, and you can learn the Bible. And you can know it pretty well. I recently talked with someone who is completing their Ph.D. They know, understand, can read, write, and communicate in ten ancient languages, including Hebrew, and are fully aware of all the languages of the Bible and have, you know, can quote verses in Hebrew from the Old Testament, whatever. It's difficult for people to realize that you can study the Bible all your life, you can get a master's degree in theology, you can earn a PhD in Semitic languages, you can have a Ph.D. in New Testament studies or Greek and still not know God at all. You can have memorized great passages of Scripture. You can recite the themes of all the Gospels and not know God at all. Because people mistakenly equate assimilating Bible knowledge with this renewing of the mind. And while it is important to learn 
biblical truth. You cannot know God and the ways of God through logic and reasoning and intellectual studies, academic studies. People graduate from seminaries and have no clue. People can speak Greek fluently and have no clue. People can teach theology and not know God. I've met them. I've seen them. And yet, the humblest person who has not had the opportunity for advanced education, who has no college degrees and no Bible languages, can through humility and prayer and seeking the face of God come to know God in such a way that they can explain the Scriptures in ways that open the eyes and just astound you with their perception. Because they know the living God. The Bible says some very curious things. One of the things it says is, the natural man cannot perceive the things of the Spirit because they're spiritually discerned. This means that in the normal approach to education, the natural man cannot understand spiritual truth. And the other thing the Scripture says that is really kind of startling is, God has hidden these things from the wise and prudent, but revealed it unto babes. For God has chosen the weak things of the world, to bring down those who are strong. And, and God has chosen the, the, the simple truths of his nature to confound the wise. God will not be known by the arrogance of education alone. Or even in part, unless it's in a humble spirit. God will only be known by pursuing him in the spirit to understand and apprehend the things of God. And he will explain the word to you. Not long after I was truly committed to Jesus Christ, as a high school, I think I was late in my junior year perhaps, that I made a decision, Romans 12, one decision, to sell out to God, lock, stock, and barrel. And I think I've told some of you this before. I had entered a Kiwanis Club essay contest on uh, something about why I'm proud to be an American, which was kind of an interesting contest. But I had entered that, and I asked the Lord if he would help me to win that contest. I wanted to take the money and buy a Bible. And I won it. I got the first place, and I took the money, and I bought a Thompson Chain Reference Bible, leather-bound, my first real Bible. I had the one they had given me when I became a primary in Sunday school. And, but this was my first real Bible. And I invested what was a fair amount of money in those days for a Bible. And I took that Bible, I still have it back there on my shelf in the office, I took that Bible into my bedroom 
And I opened it up to Genesis chapter 1 and I prayed this prayer. Oh God, you have inspired this book by your Holy Spirit. I'm going to read, but I want you to explain. I'm going to sit here every day and I'm going to open this book and I'm going to read its words and I want to ask you to tell me what you meant by what you said. That's the only way I know to learn the Scriptures, truly learn the Scriptures. That's the only way I know to understand them. You can enroll in classes, and I eventually did that, and I wrote the papers. I wrote papers on Hebrew parallelism, poetry. I wrote papers on the Psalms. I wrote papers on Greek exegesis. But if you don't open that book before Almighty God and say, I know nothing. I know nothing. I can't even see spiritual truth unless you open my eyes. Please, Father, by your Spirit, explain to me the Word. You will never understand it. And what's really scary is the more educated you get, the further away you get from God because you think you know something when in fact you know nothing. You, can, you begin to feel that you have learned because you can, you can cite passages and quote scriptures and, and explain doctrine and you can talk about language study and words and, and yet there has been no connection with the living God. You will never understand this book Unless God explains it to you. I don't know how else to say that. Now, do I mean that this is some mystical thing that like Moroni uh, with the Mormons, uh, you, you need the golden glasses to understand the words of the prophet? Is, is that what I'm saying? Uh-uh. When God explains it to you, it will be logical. When God explains it to you, the understanding will fit the syntax, it'll fit the exegesis, it'll be in tune with the grammar, it will not violate the meanings of the words or their order or arrangement. When God explains it to you, it will be consistently uh, in, its, in its unfolding, it will be seamless in its logic, it will not violate your mind. But what I'm saying is, you cannot get to spiritual truth apart from personal instruction by the Spirit of God. And if you try to go there in another way, you will end up with a lot of knowledge and learning, but none of it will be of God Himself. And I am amazed what people say when they have not learned from God. With great confidence, they, like those Jews that Jesus confronted, the Pharisees and Sadducees, with great confidence, they speak assertively of things they know nothing about. And they are left just lost 
without any real understanding of the Scriptures. So what does it take to renew your mind? First of all, it requires humility. You must come into the presence of God and with all of your heart and sincerity say, Oh God, I know nothing. Because you don't. The natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. So if you haven't had them spiritually explained, you don't know anything. You come to God with that humility and you say, Oh God, I know nothing. Please teach me. And then you become suspect of your natural inclinations because our ways are not His ways. The normal way we act and think is not the mind of Christ. And so the Scripture encourages us, but in all of your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. You must bring your life decisions before God and invite His counsel. Ask for His wisdom. Ask Him to teach you. When you hit hit a crisis in life, when you come up against a conundrum, when you don't even hit a crisis in life, I think you ought to pray about it. You ought to pray about the things you think you've got figured out. Because you may not have them figured out. You may be about to make a colossal error without a thought in the world that it's the wrong thing to do until you stop and pray about it. Father, I'm going to do this. What do you think? Tell me what to think. Here's what's before me today, O Lord. This is my day. Evaluate. And I give you permission to stop me in my tracks and give me that check in my spirit that if I'm headed in the wrong direction, you can tell me. And and Father, I have a question here. I don't know what to do about this. I I don't know what to say to my son. I don't know what to say to my daughter. I don't know how to talk to my neighbor. I need wisdom. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. He gives to everyone liberally and never chastises them for asking. James 1.5 And so if, if you want to know, ask the Lord. But not only do you need to ask Him in specific instances and in specific situations, but like I did, as a brand new, dedicated, committed follower of Jesus Christ, you, you need to sit down with your Bible in the presence of God and say, Lord, I'm going to read, but you teach. I'm going to study, but you explain. I'm going to listen to you. (coughs) One of the reasons I've kept that Bible, besides the sentimental value of it, it's so precious to me, but I started writing in the margins the things the Holy Spirit was telling me. And, And you know, God doesn't... He. God uses an age-old method of explaining Scripture that some of the old scholars understood and, and, and I think is getting lost today. It's the secret that Scripture explains Scripture. And as you study and read the Bible and begin to assimilate a certain body of knowledge of what's in the pages of the book, the Holy Spirit does the most remarkable thing. He starts saying, you read this verse over here in 2 Kings, and he says, do you remember what you read in Genesis? Oh, wow! They go together. Is that ever neat? And then you get into the prophets, and it's like, do you remember what you read in the Psalms? 
whoa. And then you get into the New Testament, it's like the whole Old Testament goes, it just opens up. It's amazing. And then God begins to, to put things together for you. He's hidden things from wise and prudent people in plain sight. And they can't connect the dots. But if you come into the presence of God and read the Word consistently, faithfully, not just in the times of crisis, not just in the times of need, but every day consistently for the simple benefit of sitting in the presence of God and saying, teach me your Word, teach me thy ways, O God. Your word is a light into my path. It's a lamp for my feet. It, it keeps me from stumbling. It puts me on the way. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. God said to Joshua, Joshua 1.8, when he was about to take the baton from Moses and lead the people into the promised land and the captain of the host of the Lord, and we know that that was Jesus Christ incarnate in the Old Testament kind of pre-visiting. And he met Joshua and he says, This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. You know what he's alluding to? Cows chewing their cud. I don't want to gross you out before lunch, but you know how they do that. They, they eat some grass, and they swallow it down, and then they kind of boom, get it back in their mouth. That's appetizing, isn't it? And they chew some more. And they chew it until they have thoroughly digested it. Do you take the Word of God in and then bring it up deliberately and meditate on it and chew on it and think about it and, and let the Holy Spirit explain it till it becomes a part of the fabric of your being? This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then I will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Now, he's not talking about Wall Street success. He, he's, not, he's not talking about business success necessarily. You might be. But what he's talking about is success in my plan. You'll be on my path. You'll have my approval. I'll be leading you. You'll be doing what I'm asking. And together, you'll be exactly where you need to be. You'll have good success. So Paul says we, we need to allow God to renew our minds because our natural thinking is wrong. I dug myself into a hole this morning. Dan and Kalinda were there to see it. I'm not going to get into that same hole again. I'm going to stay away from the edge of it today, but I, it is second time around. But I just want to tell you this. We in the West, who live in a tremendously affluent culture and have every toy, bobble, bangle, and thing imaginable, have simply carried the desires of all the other human beings on the planet to the nth degree, and we have more and better and bigger than anybody else has access to in the world. And there are many ways that we have just come to simply expect that life owes us certain things. And, and you're not normal if you don't have them. In fact, we hear it so much, it's such a part of our culture 
that, that if we don't have the American dream, we, we feel that somehow we're abnormal. Friends, I want to challenge you with the scriptures. Jesus did not say your life will be filled with happiness when you achieve the American dream. He says your life will be filled with happiness and abundance when you follow me with all of your heart. And he said do not get all worried and bothered about tomorrow. Don't spend your focus and energies thinking about tomorrow. You've got enough trouble today. Your father knows what you need to eat. He knows what you need to drink. He he knows what you need to wear. He understands that. But your objective is to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, we have our own definition of what all these things is. And the Apostle Paul had a very different experience in his life. He ended up shipwrecked many times. He ended up beaten. He ended up thrown out of town. He ended up, he could have had an affluent, wonderful, lush, uh, respectable life in Jerusalem as a chief rabbi, and, and he ended up living his life on the ragged edge, just going from one day to the next. At one point, he was obviously cold and didn't even have a coat. He asked Timothy to bring it to him, or send it to him anyway. He eventually died in a Roman jail by having his head cut off for Jesus. And Paul's assessment of his life was, I have run the race, I've finished the course. And it's been good. And I can't wait to see Jesus and receive the crown of righteousness and hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom that I've prepared for you. Paul had his values straight because he thought with the mind of Christ. Jesus was born in a cattle stall, laid in a feeding trough, grew up in poverty, became a laborer, lived his ministry itinerant life without anywhere, he said by his own testimony, to lay his head and died on a cross. The Son of God for our sin to show us what was really valuable in life. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You see, we naturally don't think right. We naturally invest in the wrong things. And Jesus sets the record straight. Paul sets the record straight. We need to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. We need to think differently than we think. We need to think biblically. Another way to say that is to have a biblical worldview. We need a biblical worldview. But that's a worldview taught by Jesus Christ. We need, to, we need to see it the way he sees it. And that will only come when we humble ourselves before God. And then Paul says, when you're renewed in the spirit of your mind, it's so that you can prove the will of God. Now, the word prove here in our verse is a word that has a broad meaning. In some cases, it means to analyze. 
In other cases, it means to demonstrate. Back in the days of the gold uh, rush in the Old West, you could go out and you could find what you thought might be land that had gold on it, and you could stake a claim. You'd go into town and you could file your claim for a piece, and then you had a certain amount of time that you had to prove up. And that meant that you had to go back to that piece of property and you had to work your claim. You had to dig a hole at least. And you had to show some gold for it. And when you put your sweat equity into it and you had a product to to show, you had proved up your claim. You demonstrated it. It wasn't just a thought in your head any longer. It was reality sitting there in the weigher's scales that said, I've gotten gold from my land and I've dug a hole and now I want to have a gold mine. Or if you're a scientist and you want to prove someone else's experiment, you take all that they've written and you learn what their controls were and you set up your laboratory to duplicate their control system and then you introduce whatever the variable is and you observe it and you record it, and if you come out with the same results, you say, I have proved that experiment. That's the breadth of the meaning of this word here. He says, do not be conformed any longer to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you can demonstrate, prove up, analyze, and show to to everyone who's watching the will of God. And furthermore, it's not the will of God, the bulamai, the I'm going to do this and nothing will stop me. It's the desire of God, his heart's yearning in the situation. And what Paul is getting at is if you live this dedicated, consecrated life where you are being renewed in the spirit of your mind, when you encounter life's opportunities and life's choices and life's troubles, and you seek the mind of Christ and and humble yourself before God and invite His counsel and His guidance so that you think rightly with divine insight into the matter and then you act in accordance to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, you have now proven the will of God. You've demonstrated it. In this moment, in this matter, I have demonstrated the heart's desire of God. People can see it. You can see it. It's now gone from my head to my life. It's become practice. It's reality. And Paul says that will of God is always good. Intrinsically good. There's no evil in it. There's nothing that's going to leave you with a bitter aftertaste. There's no buyer's remorse. It's good. It's well-pleasing. You have the sense that God is happy. I tell you what, nothing makes me happier than when I sense that God is happy with something that's happened in my life. I mean, that's, that's just a taste of heaven for me. To, to, to sense my Father giving me approval right now. Well done. It's well-pleasing to him. And it's perfect. It's just complete. It's just the right thing. 
in the moment. <coughs> this is where Paul begins. He's going to get down to the nitty-gritty very quickly. As they used to say in the South, preacher, you done quit preaching and gone to meddling. Well, Paul's going to done quit preaching here in a moment and go to meddling. That Paul and this Paul. Next week, I'm going to be meddling. He's starting to get down to the nitty-gritty of experiences and opportunities and areas of your life. But he says, this is where you start. Sell out to God, lock, stock, and barrel. Give him your body a living sacrifice. Hold nothing back. Recognize that you come to Jesus with stuff on the hard drive that's got to be fixed. And stop being conformed to the default. But allow the Spirit of God to renew your mind and and change the way you think. So that in your life, day by day and moment by moment, you will demonstrate by your behavior the heart's desire of God in every situation. And it will be that which is good and acceptable and perfect in His sight. That's the beginning place. And I want to encourage you, if you're here this morning and, you, and you're saying, you know, I don't know Greek, I, I don't know Hebrew, I can't even say the books of the Bible in order. I don't know that stuff. I'm not saying that it's not important. But what I'm saying is, you don't have to go to seminary to know the living God and to know his word and to know the truth. You just have to go to God. You have to get in his presence and say, Lord, teach me thy ways, O God. Teach me your ways. I am listening. I am open. I want to learn. And if you do that, he will teach you. If you want to know his will, Jesus says, you will know the teaching that what I speak is true. He will teach you. The Holy Spirit will lead you. And you can be wise in the ways of God if you're humble before him and acknowledge your need. Because God has hidden this this truth from the wise and prudent, the arrogant and the intellectual who rest on the laurels of his education. But he has revealed it unto babes. By the same token, you can, you can earn a Ph.D. in Old Testament studies and know the living God because you rely on God, not the education. And then he can use that education to, 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 to build that and deepen that understanding. But it begins with God and it ends with God. And that's where you have to be. Father, I pray this morning that you open the eyes of our understanding that we will realize that it is possible (laughs) to be a total dedicated Sunday school goer, a a Bible study goer, a church goer, you know, a sermon guru, and, and just have no understanding of the living God. Filled with knowledge and stupid in spirit. 
Don't let us be like that, please, Lord. Let us come before you as babes with dedicated lives, surrendered hearts, and open minds and say, Oh God, teach me your ways that I might walk in the ways of your understanding and please you in everything I do. We ask that humbly this morning in the name of Jesus, by his grace and for his glory. Amen.